Please take your seats. We are congratulating uh, Christian on being ordained as the minister at our conference. So that's wonderful, wonderful news. Uh, just to say, many of you know already that my new book was launched a couple of weeks ago. And um, if you haven't got your copy yet and you'd like to get one, and perhaps you'd like me just to uh, put my name in it and a message as a memento at the end of the service in the foyer, I will be uh, available for that special price of £10 for those of you that are at KT for a limited period. Um, I want to congratulate you, those of you, especially those of you that have been coming week by week, on this series that we've been looking at, because it is a serious series, really. Um, what if Jesus had never been born? Not many people think about what it would be like if Jesus had not been born. It's so amazing how we take for granted the influence of Christ and then the church as salt and light throughout the ages, especially in nations that have been heavily influenced by the gospel and by the Christian faith. We take things for granted. And um, right now, Great Britain has been, for at least a generation, taking its Christianity for granted and the influence of Christianity. So often, the secularists today are trying to get rid of Christianity from every sphere that they can. They want it out of society, out of education, out of medicine, out of law, out of education. That They want to get rid of it, but actually what's happening is the secularists are enjoying the benefits of the gospel's influence in this nation for, 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 for thousands of years, uh, but they don't realize the correlation between the blessing of God that's been on this nation, relatively speaking, and the fact that it has been gospel-blessed. Even today, it's like, well, we'll take your church creches, but we don't want your Jesus. We'll take your schools, but we don't want Jesus spoken about. They want Jesus out. But Christ said that we were to be salt and that we were to be light. And uh, when the saltiness goes out of a society, then what happens to that society? Well, it's like meat. Salt in those old days before um, refrigeration, salt preserved meat. And so when Jesus said, you're the salt, you are salt and light, he was saying that we as Christians and the gospel message and people being Christians at every level of society and the Christian faith um, influencing and being part of every level of society is going to bring salt into society, is going to have a preservative quality. But once you take that salt out, and what you see is society goes very rotten very quickly. We are the light of the world and the gospel and the Christian teaching and Christian influence brings light and illumination into every aspect of society. But when the light is put under a bushel or when the light is forbidden to shine, then what's going to happen? You're going to find that those areas of society that are, are, are dimming the Christian light and the Christian message are going to fall into darkness. Now, today, we're going to be looking at um, the importance of Christ the teacher and how Christianity has influenced education for everyone throughout the centuries. Then we've only got two more Sundays. Next Sunday is going to be a very important one because I'm going to be looking at freedom for all, Christianity's contribution to civil liberty. And that might sound a mouthful, but really, isn't it, isn't it interesting? Remember the Arab Spring? And how everybody in the West was jumping up and down saying, this is going to be amazing because democracy is going to come to Egypt and, and all these places and Tunisia. It's going to be wonderful and there's going to be freedom and liberty and religious freedom. And, they, and they're going to enjoy all the freedoms that we've had in the West. And they were shocked that when democracy came to some of those nations, the first thing that people voted for was less freedom voting in the Islamic parties. And the Western mind couldn't understand why they hadn't taken their freedom and liberty serious. But this is the whole point. The freedom and liberty, and I'm going to be talking about this next, the freedom and freedoms and liberties that we enjoy in Europe, although they're diminishing, 
with the lack of salt and light that is also diminishing. And the freedoms that we associate with uh, great nations like America, which are also under threat, these freedoms come from the message of the gospel that doesn't impose itself on anybody, but invites people to to participate. The gospel, as we saw in our first session, that, that teaches the human dignity and respect of every single person, no matter what creed or color or even religious persuasion, this type of dignity of humanity breeds freedom and, and, and liberty. And last week, of course, we looked at the poor and Jesus' message to the poor and how the Christian influence had throughout the centuries has had an incredible impact on the poor and despised. So we're we'll looking at freedom for all next week and then the final session, the week after, will be the beauty of morality. How Christian faith and teaching brings strength to families and strength to society. So there's only two left. After that, we're going to be starting a new series, and I want you to spread the word. We are going to be spending some time looking at the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached. Can anyone guess what the greatest sermon was that Jesus ever preached? The Sermon on the Mount, you're already there, you see, because you're the teaching crowd. You think about these things. We're going to spend some quality time in the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is the great example model and illustration of spirit-filled living. You can't live according to the precepts of the Sermon on the Mount without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Sermon on the Mount is so misunderstood by so many. So we're going to spend some time, the Sermon on the Mount, the key to spiritual relationships. And it's going to really enhance us. So that's where we're going on, on these, uh, these 5 o'clock uh, teaching services. Well, today we're going to get into the what if Jesus had never been born? How would that affect education? And again, with all of these subjects, I think that we can quite easily dismiss their importance. I've said how the secularists take for granted the things that they have today that was won by the gospel and the church for them over the centuries. But so can Christians. Christians can take for granted their Christian heritage over the centuries. And Christians are the ones. I mean, it's easy to blame secularists, but the secularists will only move into the void of of lack of Christianity, won't they? So if we back off, if, if we just ride off the blessing of former Christian generations, if we ride off their blessing, after a while that blessing is going to get spent, isn't it? We have a wonderful Christian inheritance, all of us. I mean, this building, for example, was, was, was paid for by Victorian church planters that had a heart to reach the new estate of Notting Hill Gate, and we haven't paid a penny for the building. Okay, we did have a restoration of it. Thank you very much for that, but you know what I mean. If we were trying to buy a church of this, this level in, in Notting Hill Gate today, imagine how much we'd all have to sacrifice. And so not just that, that's just an illustration. So many things we take for granted as Christians and fail to realize that we have to continue to input our Christian heritage. And it's the same. And I hope by the end of this sermon to show you the importance of education and how what we enjoy today in education, really, it comes from Christ's and his teaching. So the first thing I want to say about Jesus is that he was the great teacher. What if he'd never been born? Can you imagine? It's hard sometimes to step back from what we, maybe we've been brought up as, as Christian children, or, or, or maybe we're just used to the church always being there, and, and things like the Ten Commandments, and do unto others as they do unto you. I mean, very recently, we had our own prime minister, wasn't he, telling us that we should preach the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, that it's good for society, and, and we, because we've had the Bible for so long, we can get used to it. Imagine if Jesus never brought his teaching. Imagine... The horrors are being left with only the Old Testament and not the New Testament. And that the law of the Old Testament was still applied in every aspect. And there was no Jesus who fulfilled the law. There was no Jesus who who, who completed the law and brought the new commandment that you love one another. 
Can you imagine the darkness of the world if it was paganism and none of Christ's teaching? And Jesus was the greatest teacher. Mark chapter 1 verse 22. Mark chapter 1 verse 22 tells us that they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority. You know, when Jesus taught, he didn't just teach. But what he taught changed people's lives. When Jesus began to speak, people sat up and listened. Because there was a note of authority that came with his teaching. And he taught in so many wonderful and diverse ways. He taught through sayings and words. Think of all those amazing parables that, that, that even today many people in society that aren't Christians know. The parable of the Good Samaritan. So much truth, so much teaching, so much salt, so much light in each of those parables. And he taught everybody that would listen. And this is important. He taught not just the men, but he taught the women. And he was heavily criticized for being with women and teaching women. I mean, remember that time when he taught that Samaritan woman? He shouldn't have been anywhere near her according to the religion of the day. Remember when, when there was Martha and there was Mary? He was in a house teaching women. And he taught children. When the disciples said, get those kids away. Jesus is too busy teaching these important truths to adults. What did he say? He said, let them come to me. In fact, if you want to learn and to be taught what the kingdom of God is like, you need to become like one of these little children. Absolutely revolutionary for his time. And also, of course, he taught through his lifestyle. You know, they called Jesus rabbi, didn't they? And you know, the rabbis of that time, they weren't, they weren't like lecturers today. Um, in those days, to teach was not just to, to give facts and figures and sermons. But the main thing about a rabbi is he didn't just teach you by word. He taught you by example. Teaching, when Jesus taught, it was discipleship. And those that he taught most were his closest disciples, the 12. He took them with him. He didn't just say, okay, we'll meet for lectures at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for two hours, and then I'll mark your essays. He was with them. He ate with them. He demonstrated by word and deed. He, he showed them by his lifestyle. And what did they do? They, they took what they saw, and they replicated his lifestyle, his teaching, and his, his words. Uh, a great historian, Miller, says this about Christ. Had Christ left this world without making any provision for carrying on his work, he would have still have been the greatest teacher of all time. And his life and example would have influenced profoundly the whole development of educational theory. But Jesus didn't just come like a preacher to preach a few sermons and when he died... That he spent his time developing disciples. After all, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, we see a mandate for ongoing education in the Jesus style. The mentoring, the discipling, the replicating, not just the truth, but the lifestyle in other people. Remember his great commission in Matthew 28, 19 was that we should go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You see, making disciples involves teaching. And teaching, as I've said, is not somebody at the front with just a blackboard telling you about things. Teaching is imparting and changing people's lives into the image of God. To make disciples. Every disciple needs a teacher. How many cell leaders do we have in this place today? Wave at me. Well, you're teachers, you know. You're teachers because you have people that you are discipling on behalf of the Lord. And so you're teaching them about Jesus. You're teaching, but not just teaching them in word, but also, we're not perfect, but we are trying to be an example to 
the disciples. We are making disciples and teaching. So Jesus left us, if I can put it this way, with a great educational mandate. And if I can use that education in the broadest way of, of education, of every aspect of human development. Jesus sent us out as educators, as rabbis, as teachers to bring instruction and, de- and development to humanity once they're born again so that we could replicate little Christ's Everywhere. And uh, when, when we were first called Christians, it was in Antioch, when Paul was at Antioch, and the word Christian simply means little Christ. Do you know that? Little Christ. We're teaching and encouraging one another in the cell vision to be little Christs, to do what he did, to be as he is, to speak on his behalf. How exciting. And in the early Christian church, before they were known as Christians, they were also known as the way. And what was that way? Why were they called the way in the beginning of Acts? Well, they were called the way because it was a way of life. It was a way of thinking. It was a way of being. It was an educational program. And what were the apostles doing in those early years? Yes, they were preaching the gospel. Yes, they were moving in signs and wonders. But daily, what what was their task? Well, daily we see in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. It says that the apostles never stopped teaching that Jesus... Oh, sorry. Acts 5... Yeah, that's right. Never stopped teaching that Jesus is the Christ. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus as the Christ. So the early church were full of educating people in the gospel, teaching and preaching, not just in big uh, environments like the temple courts, but in every house, people were being taught about the words and life and example and power of Christ and the spirit that he has sent. So right there at the center of the early church, education was taking place. We think of the great apostle Paul and how highly educated he was. He has been educated as a, as a, um, under, under a school of thought from the great Rabbi Gamaliel himself. And Paul, it was like he had a PhD from Oxford or Cambridge in the law. I mean, he was highly educated. You think about when he was ministering to Greeks in Athens, he even knew about their poets And their philosophers, that's how educated he was. And he used his education for the benefit of God. You know, Christians should never shy away from education. Not all of us are going to be professors. But education, we can use our education to bring the gospel to people and in places that it would never go. Thank God for those professors that are now standing up for Christ standing up in the science and philosophy and defending the faith and using their education for the glory of God. Whatever level of education you have, whether it be very minimal or great, you use that education for the benefit of the gospel. I recommend this book to you because it will educate you. This book, will you will learn things about the gospel and grace and the law that... that If you don't read it, I doubt any of you will probably ever come across. There's so much ignorance about the Old and the New Testament. And that education will set you free. Because Jesus said you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you don't know, if you don't have the knowledge, if you haven't been educated in truth, then truth can't set you free. That's why we have these... um, Uh, afternoon five o'clock teachings so that we can look at everything from discipleship to scriptures and I tell you what this is one of the best places to be well you're here so I'm preaching to the converted but this is one of the best places to be on an ongoing uh, basis at the five o'clock because you will be educated in so many different types of truth that you might not come into contact if you don't come here and that truth will set you free. 
even this short series that we're doing on what if Christ had never existed. You might not remember everything that I say, especially when I talk about what took place over the centuries. I won't remember everything that I say. But what will happen will be a process of confidence and appreciation of what Jesus and his gospel has done in nations that will reside in you. So that when you see people criticizing the church in society, you might not remember everything I've said. You can always go back to the, uh, to the recordings, of course, on the internet. But you'll know in your heart, I heard the truth. Christ has set the nations free at so many different levels. Where would we be without the Lord? And uh, Paul, when he spoke about overseers, spiritual overseers or bishops in 1 Timothy 3.2. One of the main things apart from moral integrity to be a bishop or an overseer was the ability to teach, to form disciples, to pass on truth. After the apostolic era, and remember, when we talk about the apostolic era, we're talking about the time in the, in the first century up to 100 AD or thereabouts when the apostles were alive. That's the apostolic era. When the last apostle died, perhaps that was, was John the apostle. He was certainly the one that wrote the last books in the Bible. When he died, the apostolic era was over. So what was the next era? Can anyone tell me? The early church, the church fathers or the patristics. When you hear about the church fathers, that's the next wave after the apostles, the next wave of leaders and overseers are known as the early church fathers, especially in the, the second century and third century. And, uh, and so we can look at the church and its development. Now, now, even from AD 80, people were forming educational material for Christians. There is a, uh, something that church historians know very well called the Didache. The Didache. And what it was, it was a manual... Uh, you know, only done 50 years after Christ had died, they were writing manuals for Christians to be discipled with. This was a manual. The Didache was a manu manual for new believers. Now, we're going to come on to broader education, but the Christian education begins in being educated in the gospel and the word of God and growing in God. And then out of that, it becomes, it becomes broader. And so Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, in the, in the second century, um, he said that children, the Christian children, were being taught. And they were being taught two things. They were being taught, number one, the scriptures. The truth will set you three. But secondly, he said that the Ignatius Bishop of Antioch, he said they were also being taught a trade. And they were following in their Jewish heritage. Because we know people like Paul, for example. Isn't it strange? Have you thought? Paul, who was like a professor, but he was also a tent maker. That's because Jewish children and then Christian children took this on. It was like, we need to treat them, a, teach them a trade. We need to make sure that they are successful in society, that they can make their way and pay their way and look after their family. We need to educate them vocationally. We need to educate them so that they can have a job. You think today many people are suffering because they haven't been educated to get a job. They've dropped out of school or the education that they've received is no good in the job market. And people are saying we need to, to get back to educating. Well, in, in the early Christian church, they were doing that. They made sure every child knew how to get a job, but also that they knew the scriptures. Because they realized that a child, in order to grow, needs to be educated Christianly. They need to be discipled, not just taught, discipled taught in the word and the spirit, but they also need to be fit for society so they'll be a citizen that will be able to go forward in the chosen career and be blessed and have a blessed family. And so we see that in the early Christian church. Not only that, but right from the beginning, the early Christians taught women, men, and children like Jesus. Sometimes they lost their way in the, in the other centuries, but they saw that Christ wanted to teach everybody. You know, they had to face this in the early church because a lot of the Jewish women that became Christians, do you know, they weren't, they weren't educated properly. Because in those days, the Jews would educate the boys. But why would you educate the women? I mean, how much education do you ladies need to cook food and have children? 
Hey, I didn't say that. I said that's the way that they thought. Educate the boys. I think I better move on quickly to say that Jesus taught everyone. Women, everybody. He taught everybody. And we saw this in the first session, the dignity of human beings. In Christ, there's no male, no female, no slaves. And the wonderful thing was, in these house churches and cell groups, as we call them now, in the early church, they would teach the slaves too. Master and slave would sit and receive the education of, of the gospel. And so they taught women and men and the children. Now, in, in Corinthians, we see that there was a problem because the, 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 uh, the women had not been properly educated. And so what was taking place was when they were preaching and teaching, the women didn't have a background to understand what had been said. They were so badly educated that they kept talking to their husband and saying, well, what's, what's he say? What's he? And so Paul says... Women be silent in the church. Have you heard that? Well, shh, shh. Women, shh, shh, shh. And people say, women should be silent in the church. The reason that they were, they were to be silent in the church is because either they didn't understand what was going on, so they were just talking amongst themselves, or they were, because they were, it says they should be silent, and then they should go and ask their husbands. So you see, the Christians were addressing the educational lack in many of the women's life at times. It wasn't that they should be silent because they weren't worthy of speaking, because they were allowed to prophesy as well, weren't they, in Corinthians? It was that they should learn, 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 and, and ask their husbands so that they could come to a, a, a great place. You know, by the 5th century in the 400s, St. Augustine, the great theologian, said this about Christian women. He said, Christian women are better informed in divine matters than the pagan male philosophers. So within a few hundred years, the Christian women, they could handle anybody. All these pagan philosophers who were debating and speaking against the gospel, send the women in. They were, they were taught, fed, ready for action. They were highly educated uh, and could deal with anything that came across their path. The, the, the great bishop, Bishop Ramsey, and, hist, and historian says this, Christianity's aim was universal education, not education confined to the rich, as among the Greeks and Romans, and it made no distinction towards sex. In the Roman and Greek times, it was the rich that were educated. And as I've said, there was a big bias towards the males. Although there were, there were women that were taught as well, but mainly it was the males. Right from the beginning, the gospel and Christ's example said everyone deserves an opportunity to grow and to learn. When we come into the Middle Ages, we find those great institutions at that time, the monasteries and the nunneries. These places were great places of learning. In fact, many of the monasteries and nunneries, they actually preserved a lot of, uh, of educational material from the Greeks and the Roman scientists and philosophers that would have actually probably got destroyed during the times of barbarism and the Dark Ages. You know, when the Roman Empire fell, then all these Goths and Visigoths all, all the way from Germany and other places, they swept in burning Rome burning books. They weren't interested in education. But the Christians took all the learning, not just Christian learning, but all the learning. And they took the learning and they preserved and hid it in monasteries all over the place. In fact, when, when Islam and its jihad took over many areas of the Middle East that was Christian, they actually discovered in these churches and monasteries much of the old Greek literature and education that they then uh, used for their benefit. The first, what they call the father of English history. Do you know he was a monk? 718, his name was Bede. He lived up in Durham. And he wrote the first history of the English-speaking people. And it was a wonderful history 
because he didn't say, right, I'll write a history and forget God. But in it, as well as the kings and the wars and the different tribes and what took place, he also spoke about the gospel. St. Aidan and St. Cuthbert and the preaching of the gospel and the miracles and signs and wonders that took place. Because Christian education did not separate Scripture from other subjects. It was all part of someone's education. Scholars, monks gave their lives, not just to transmitting and copying the Scriptures, but also reading ancient literature. They weren't frightened to learn from other people. And it was that richness that would one day, with their libraries, begin what we know as universities. And then we have the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. We're talking about people like Luther and Calvin. And Luther, he saw in the Scriptures Christ the Teacher. And he was determined that society would reap the benefits of the gospel. And he was determined that salt and light should be available for every single citizen. He believed, he was the first person to believe in free and compulsory education for all paid by the state. Luther believed in the church that the church had a role and the state had a role. And if you look at Romans, you will see that God, God gave the world two institutions, two divine institutions. He gave us the church, but he also gave us government. Do you know government is from God? Whether government believes it or not, the institution of government is divine. That's why even today, we talk about people in parliament and the cabinet as ministers, don't we? The minister of education. The minister of defense. Why do we call them ministers? Do you know I'm a minister? I'm a minister. My, when I write on people's passports and it says, who are you? I write, minister of religion. I'm a minister of the gospel, but minister of religion. But who are these? In parliament, they, because of our Christian heritage, they're called ministers. But they're ministers of government. We're both, we're meant to be both equally called by God. I'm to serve the Lord as a minister of the gospel and members of parliament. And then they're to serve God as ministers of government. And Luther understood this. And he said that the government should ensure that everybody is given an opportunity of education to train godly citizens for ministry and society. So the reformers, they saw education like this. They said, well, what are we educating people for? What are we training people for? We are training them for the two institutions. We're training people for the ministry, and we're training people to be good citizens or to be involved in ministry, if you like, in local government, you know, mayors and everything like that. And so it was the idea that there was, these, there was these callings. You're going to be a good Christian and a good citizen, and we're going to have to teach you how to do that, how to be both. But also, some of you will rise to be ministers of the gospel, and some of you will rise to be ministers and good godly ministers of government. And they expected the same standards of both. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but many of the universities today, both in this nation, like Oxford, if you look at Oxford, and, and, and many of the names of the colleges are like Jesus College, Trinity College. It's like Jake, was, my son was doing a special thing with Oxford University, and uh, part of it was at Jesus College. And Jake, I said, which college are you going to, this, this thing that you're going to? He said, oh, we're going to Jesus College. And I said, I know him. Tell him I know the bloke who owns the college. Tell him he's a friend of mine. They might, they might, you might get in. Tell him, tell him at Jesus College, I know that guy. I know Jesus. Maybe they'll let you in later on in thing. And I was joking, of course, but it's true. These, these colleges, and, and in, you think of America as well. Places like Harvard and Princeton, they were set up by Christians. Why? To train people. For the ministry of the gospel, pastors and ministers, but also to train people to serve God as citizens. And this, this was the foundation 
of modern Western education. Uh, Luther's and his disciples in the 1500s founded the first public school system. Luther said this, I hold that it is the duty of earthly authority to compel its subjects to keep their children in school. Luther thought like this. He thought lack of education was the enemy of the gospel and the enemy of society. He thought if people aren't educated in the gospel and in also uh, trades and what it is to be a citizen, if they're not educated in these things, then darkness will come. We often talk about ignorance, don't we, as being the, the stuff that is done out of ignorance. Education in all its forms is meant to bring light and understanding. And this was what Luther and the reformers desired um, to do. They, they, they began schools, they began gymnasiums, they began bringing grades into their schools, the reformers, because they thought people need to know how they're doing and that they move from one grade to another. This was all Christian education. Not just Christians, but pastors and ministers. They were saying, we need to release education to everyone. The peasants as well. They deserve an opportunity for light and revelation of the gospel and science and all, all things. Some of the early scientists came from monasteries. And, and in monasteries, they used to dissect um, bodies to try and learn more about health. How many have ever heard of kindergartens? Kindergartens. Well, kindergarten was started by a Christian called Frobel. And, and what was happening, when he was a young boy, he used to spend time in the garden with his father. And while he was there, his father would teach him things and talk to him about things while, while he was with him. And when he grew up, he decided, do you know, this is what we need. What we need is a gardener and a garden for children to come in and that gardener can grow, look after, prune, and make a healthy plant of that child. Kinder, child, garden. That's where it came from. His experience of being educated by his father in gardening. And he thought, we need a garden to grow our children in, in the gospel. From an early age now, from an early age. So ever you hear that word, kindergarten, you know it was part of, of Christian education. But the wonderful thing about Christians is that as things grew, they thought, well, everybody deserves education, firstly in the gospel and the scriptures, but also in all manner that they might grow and reach their potential in society. And some people thought about the death. In 1775 uh, in Paris, there was a great move amongst Christians and ministers about how can the deaf hear the gospel and uh, a famous priest called Father Charles Epi, Father Charles Epi, he devised in 1775 in Paris sign language. And we see how wonderful it is, our whole Talking Hands ministry, uh, working tirelessly behind the scenes. And you see them there, don't you? And to us, we don't understand what's happening. Well, sometimes the, the, the things that they do, sort of like, oh yeah, you know, punch, and they punch or something like that. But... And there's people sitting there. If they didn't have talking hands, how would they have access to the preaching of the gospel? And we need to do so much more to give even more access to them. And we've just begun. There's so much more to be done. But all that was happening in the 1770s. When outside the church, people didn't give a hoot about anybody. But there they were thinking about it, sign language. And, and the idea was, we must have sign language, or how are they going to hear the gospel? 1817 was the first Christian school for the deaf in Paris. It was there to bring them the gospel and also to give them access for education so that they didn't just have to sit on the road and beg or just sit and hope that their family would tolerate them and feed them and, 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 you know, and, and maybe just keep them in a corner. But they would be able to reach their potential as human beings. Isn't that wonderful? Also, the blind. The French were really into blessing people at this time, the Christians. The blind. You've all heard of Braille, haven't you? Well, Louis Braille was a dedicated Christian 
who believed at an early age he lost both eyes. And at an early age, and he believed that God had called him to reach other blind people with the gospel. And so he experimented with different bumps. And, and they had special sort of bumps that they used in the military where they would send coded messages with bumps. And, and he grew and he worked on this his whole life until he produced ba- uh, Braille that was adopted by the French government with the express desire to reach the blind with the gospel and also further education. That was in 1844. Let me just give you a couple of other examples. Sunday schools. You ever heard of Sunday schools? We have Sunday school, don't we? Churches are renowned to having Sunday schools. But you know, Sunday schools, when they were first brought into being in seven, around 1780, they weren't there simply to teach the Bible. You know, we bring our children to Sunday school. We don't expect them to learn French or or writing, or ink, do we? They learn that at school. We expect them to learn about the Lord and learn about scriptures and the word. Sunday school, in our mind, is Christian learning and education at church, isn't it? But Robert Rakes, he had this desire to educate poor, poor children. Firstly, to get them saved and to educate them in the word. And at that time, we were slowly coming into the Industrial Revolution where children were being made to work six days a week. Can you imagine that? Children, little children working in factories six days a week. The only time that he could educate these children was on Sunday. And many people were annoyed with him when he did it. They said, you can't teach children on the Sabbath day. But he began slowly with lessons from 10 till 12 on Sunday mornings, And he wanted them to understand the Bible and the gospel first off. And he realized that none of them could read. So for them to have access to the knowledge of God and scriptures for themselves, he realized, well, the first thing I need to do is teach them to read. And then teach them to write. And soon these Sunday schools multiplied up and down the country. The Methodists like... um, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, they loved this Sunday school. They adopted it. And up and down the country, children that wouldn't even know how to sign their name, never held a pen, read a book, six days a week working. They now had some, some people, Christians, teaching them how to read, how to write. They got the gospel. It was part of the revival. It was the new generation that was being educated. And many of them were able to begin to climb out of the poverty that they were in. Because after a while, as they got prizes, they they could be a clerk. They didn't just have to be a factory child sweeping up. They could read. They could do accounts. There There was growth. There was learning. These Sunday schools, it really was a whole Christian education. Not just the gospel, but giving people the tools and opportunity to make their way in life. Isn't that what everybody talks about today? You hear all this talk in politics, don't you? And rightly so, about access to education as a fundamental right of people. And the concerns, rightly so, that the government has that people in poorer areas or, or in difficult situations don't have the same access to education as, as people from nice middle-class fam- wealthy families. And the idea is, how do, how do we give everybody an opportunity to make something of their lives? Will we give them education? Well, that, that's come out from our Christian heritage before the government was doing anything at all. The Christians were forming schools for people to educate them in the gospel. But of course, Christian education, we need people not just to be educated in maths and literature and writing and science. We need them to be educated in the word of God. Because education without being educated in the gospel is not an education at all. It's darkness gone to seed. And so today, with all this, we don't want Christian teaching in our schools. These people should go to their history books and realize that it was Christian teaching, along with with, with vocational and other teaching, that made this nation relatively blessed. And again, I say to you, 
If, if, if you don't, if people say, well, you know, it's not Christianity, look at non-Christian nations. Look at the nations that have, have spent centuries without Christianity. I wouldn't want to live there unless I was to preach the gospel and change it. I wouldn't want to live there. I wouldn't, my, wouldn't want my kid to be there. The poor are still not taught in many of these areas. And we've said all this is linked. It's because human life is not seen as the image of God. It's because they don't have the heart for the poor that is one of the central messages of Christ. It's all linked together, isn't it? I'm doing these different sessions, but you pull one and you see it affects the other. Christ's attitude to women affects things like the sex trade today. In nations where they, they don't value women or religions that say women are second-class uh, uh, beings, you find great sexual abuse of people like that. Or in secular nations that, that, that take sex out of its context of procreation and family and, and make it recreation. See, that's miseducation. I end on this. Abraham Lincoln, one of the greatest presidents... Of, of America said this, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. You know, the Nazis understood this. They, they, they weren't interested in the old people so much. They wanted the Hitler youth. They wanted to, they knew that if they got the children from zero to 14, and educated them in their lives that, that, that they would produce the next generation. This is why there is a battle for education today. This is why we need to educate our children. Many Christian parents, and Luther, was, Luther got very angry at Christian parents that didn't properly educate their children in the gospel. If you're a Christian parent here today, don't just rely on the great children workers of KT Sunday by Sunday to educate your child. You must take responsibility for the Christian education of your child because they're not getting it in many of our schools. Some schools, church schools, are wonderful at it. You have to take responsibility. I took responsibility for my son. I knew he was going into a school, a good school, but I knew that sooner or later he's going to come across things like evolution and all these types of things. And I thought, I'm going to take responsibility for educating him. There are things that he has that are age-appropriate on different aspects of things like evolution and science and morals and, 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 and the truth of the Bible that are there for him. He's educating himself in it. And when there's a problem or someone debates with him, he knows where he can go. And it's not just that I'm a pastor, it's I'm a parent. And, and one of the big problems today is Christian children backsliding. Backsliding. I mean, you even hear this thing called PK syndrome. PK, ever heard of that? PK syndrome, pastor's kids syndrome. In other words, the idea is the pastor's kids, the vicar kids, uh, usually go, go way offline. Why? Because the pastor's so busy educating the adult congregation, that he hasn't taken the time to educate his child. And if you haven't taken your child pastor, or whatever you call yourself, if you haven't taken time to educate your child, you'll, certain, you'll spend a lot of time weeping and wailing when that child goes astray. Amen? But for all of us, you need to take responsibility so that your child does not backslide, that they understand not just, not just you, know, you know, you shouldn't have sex before marriage, but why? If I was 15 or 16... And you said, you shouldn't have sex before marriage. Why? Because you're a Christian. I'd go, why? Because the Bible says so. Why? Because I'm a 15, 16-year-old boy and it, and it looks good to me. And all my other friends are telling me how great it is. Oh, what? Because the church says so. No, but you sit down and you, you educate them. You explain You show them what happens with illicit sex. You show them. You, you, re you, you reveal. You see what I'm talking about? We need to do that with all our children. Be responsible because an educated... I'm not saying you can educate a child in Christian way. You give them the best. They can still go wrong, can't they? 
We all know that. In the end, you can only... But we've got to give them the best we can, the best shot at staying with the Lord, of being able to know where to go for answers, of not just being told, don't do that, do this, but to explain why. Let's give them the best that we've got so that the children that we bring up are salt and light. Anyway, I'm on a little bit of a soapbox when it comes to educating our youngsters. I wish that I had been educated properly as a Christian child. I went to a liberal church, and they didn't educate me in anything. Didn't edu- I knew vicars that kids were doing all sorts of stuff, and I wish that someone had sat down, good youth teaching, and my parents, at that time, they didn't know any better. Don't blame them. They didn't know any better. I wish somebody had explained not just what to do, but why. Why? I, I would have gone... Th- I would, I would have been spared so much. And if I hadn't been spared, well, then at least it really would have been my fault, not my ignorance. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the great teacher in word and deed and lifestyle. We recognize that it's not by accident that so-called Christian nations have excelled in education, not just the rich, but that, that there is a heart in so-called Christian nations, that everybody should have access to education. That didn't appear overnight. That wasn't some idea of an atheist. But that was salt and light and Christ, your example, who taught women, children, everybody. It was your influence, Lord, that has blessed the nations to appreciate education. Have mercy on our nation when they seek to thrust you out of that that has come from you. Turn us back to the gospel. Lord, let there be that great marriage of education where people are brought up to be Christians and Christian citizens, that all of us would be ministers of God's word, but also take our place as Christian citizens in society as you have designed us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Next week, next week we are going to look at freedom and liberty. I mean, it's such a buzzword, freedom. We fight wars for freedom. What is freedom? What is liberty? Where did it come from? Why is it when we look at non-Christian nations, their appreciation of freedom is nothing like ours. One of the most important things that Christ came to give us was freedom in every aspect of our lives. We'll see you next week for that. Don't forget, R.T. Kendall will be with us in a few minutes' time uh, at our revival service. Thanks, Christian. I'll be signing books in the foyer if you would like to have one signed. Thanks.